Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're really busy and you were in D.C. lately. Tell us about what you were doing there. Yeah, we had a uh, quick run in D.C. doing a couple of things. Firstly, it was the 50th anniversary of the DEA. And, you know, that's important because these are people who put their lives on the line every day uh, in over 70 countries around the world, as well as in the United States. Um, I think it's hard to measure what would happen if we didn't have any uh, federal law enforcement with drugs, uh, because you're sort of measuring something that didn't happen. Uh, but you know, we have we know places like uh, British Columbia and Vancouver and other places where they've really done very little federal uh, enforcement, and we see how damaging the problem is. So things can get worse. Um, it was it was a great day also to um, talk with several people at DEA around several things that we're looking at at SAM, which is one of the organizations I lead, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. One of those things was about the rescheduling of marijuana. It's a kind of a complicated thing, but discussing with them what the implications of that would be if that were to happen. Um, you know, my organization, SAM, I founded with former Congressman Patrick Kennedy. We, we just believe that the science should lead on this issue, that People don't understand how potent today's marijuana is, and it's so much stronger than before, and that there's a for-profit industry, just like uh, big tobacco, big pharma, big alcohol, et cetera, that are trying to you know, get people hooked uh, so that they can make money. And uh, so there are a lot of implications. We're, we're totally for research, of course, um, but there are important implications that was you know important for me to talk about over there at DEA. But the other reason I was there was to brief the Bipartisan Fentanyl Prevention Caucus. And this is a kind of a rare uh, bipartisan effort, actually, on this issue where you have someone as conservative as Representative Ken Calvert from kind of the eastern part of Southern California, uh, as well as uh, Madeline Dean from the suburbs of Philadelphia, Representative Madeline Dean, uh, who, you know, are teaming up with uh, Congressman Issa, as well as um, um, other Democrats and Republicans to really talk about this issue in a more nuanced way. So I, I briefed the caucus on you know, how addiction, yes, it's a disease, but it's also unlike other brain diseases. It's one that does respond to consequences and to, you know, carrots and sticks. And, you know, other brain diseases, most of them don't respond to that. So, you know, Alzheimer's disease, for example, you can't tell somebody that has advanced Alzheimer's, you know, if you remember my name tomorrow, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I mean, that won't really affect behavior. But if you have to talk to someone that has an addiction, um, and you give them either positive or negative consequences, that can sometimes change, actually often change behavior. And we've seen that with things like drug courts. So I talked a little bit about drug courts. I talked about um, different probation programs that actually use carrots and sticks to get people to stop using. Some of them don't even need treatment. They just need a credible threat and they'd stop. Um, and they need to be bought into it. They need to see it as fair. And so there is a way to do that. And it's not kind of this false dichotomy of, either have to legalize all drugs and let everyone do whatever they want or, you know, lock everyone up in prison and have a war on drugs. So there's a lot of nuance that gets lost in this conversation. So I talked about that there and, um, you know, met with other members of Congress while I was there, too. So you must have heard this because you're assisting us here in Oregon with our 
efforts to repeal or repeal and reform Measure 110, which is the measure, the ballot measure that was passed strangely, overwhelmingly to yeah. decriminalize all drugs. I think, and I'm one of the reasons, I'm, I'm one of the reasons it passed, Kevin. I'm one of the people that voted for it. You know, I have a homeless sister who's an opioid addict. And when I read the ballot measure, you know, I really believed that they meant what they said when they said they were going to get us treatment. And I thought it would be like the Portugal model and yeah. not the Portugal model now, but right. you know, the one that Dr. Mm. Zhao Gulao was mm -hmm. seemed to be happy about, I don't know, it was, it was mm -hmm. maybe even five years ago, mm -hmm. um, where there's intervention mm -hmm. and there's some kind of compelled treatment, whether it mm -hmm. be via court, whether it be mm -hmm. via family members, social workers, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. People don't realize this, but Portugal has law enforcement involved. And of course, as you know, mm -hmm. Kevin, none of that's happening here. Never mm -hmm. did. No, it's not. And, and, you know, we tried to work on it because we knew when we looked at, you know, the uh, the the folks who actually um, were uh, behind this, we were very skeptical. When you have the Drug Policy Alliance, whose goal it is to legalize all drugs, uh, and, uh, you know, they want zero, uh, you know, uh, of carrots and sticks. They, they're a very anti-drug court, for example. And so when we looked at them as the primary funder of this, we were very skeptical. Uh, and then when you looked into the actual wording of it, uh, it was nothing like what the commercial said it would be, which is, you know, treatment over jail, treatment over incarceration for users. And it's like, yeah, we need a new way. You know, Oregon already at the time was so low, one of the lowest states in the country for treatment delivery. So it's kind of like, well, maybe anything could help, you know, and I don't blame people for voting for it because, you know, the average person isn't going to do the research that, you know, I've done over 25 years and other folks have done to actually see what a lot of this stuff is really about, the actual language, the actual organizations, who they are, where they get their money from. And so, um, you know, we tried to raise awareness about this in 2020. Obviously, it was a big year for COVID. It was very difficult. And uh, so I wasn't surprised when I saw that, actually. I kind of, because they played their cards right and spent millions of dollars, I actually thought, you know, this this could pass. And um, but, uh, you know, now we're seeing this incredible backlash because people realize they're not getting what they paid for. Uh, treatment, you know, admission is now still fewer than, you know, one percent of anybody who's given a citation. Citations really aren't given at all. Fines aren't given at all. The phone line is basically closed down because, you know, you were supposed to be able to call a phone line to get help if you didn't want to. Yeah, pay lines the, for life, right? Right. Yeah. Like, and I've known I've and known Dwight lines Holton for life. He's a great guy. He he helps yes. run that. Yes. And they tried their best. And I don't think they're running it anymore. But, you know, Dwight and Lines for Life actually know very well the predecessor organization for Lines for Life is one of the original drug prevention organizations in our country, uh, which was called um, the Oregon Partnership, Judy Cushing. And, uh, you know, then it became Lines for Life under under Dwight, who I worked with very closely when he was U.S. attorney. And I was actually in the Obama administration at the time. Great guy. They did their best. I mean, if, if anyone was going to do their best and make it work, it would be them. Yeah. And, you know, they're, it's basically not working uh, to everyone's admission. Oh, and it's so, not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not at all. So do you know about this Portugal trip that a lot of the Oregon leaders are going on? Yes, absolutely. I've been looking at that with intrigue, uh, you know, and I, I'm always skeptical when the folks folks do a trip because 
it's often a predetermined conclusion of what they're going to like they, they could save them their miles and their radiation from flying um, by just kind of pretending that they went or having like a zoom maybe because I, I maybe I'm too cynical because I've seen so many fact finding trips for legalization where when I ask them, OK, did you go to the biggest emergency room in the where in the state that you visited to ask them about? Um, the chronic vomiting that happens and the psychosis. Oh, no, we didn't. Okay. Did you talk to teachers who are seeing the dropout rates because of the marijuana? No, we didn't. Did you talk to parents who are parents of kids who died by suicide and their suicide note literally said marijuana made me do it? Like, did you talk to them to get their experience? No, we didn't. Well, who did you talk to? Government officials. Okay. You talk to the government officials that are there to defend the policy that they're putting it, that they just put in place. I mean, you know, so I, I'm very cynical about these trips. I hope this one is better. I think I hope people are smarter, but I'm a little bit worried about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm worried about it as well. And I know it's being paid for in large part yeah. by the Drug Policy Alliance, which makes me think right. why, you know, it's like North Korea ushering you around. I mean, why are they going to show you anything that's not helpful to their narrative since they want to hold on to 110 so badly and they see all this backlash? Um, one terrible statistic that just came out recently from Portland police is that since mid-June 10, juveniles have overdosed and they think it's fentanyl in all but one of yeah. the cases. And as you know, Kevin, yeah. at least here in Oregon, certainly in Portland, fentanyl's in literally everything. They can call it Adderall yes. or meth. It's fentanyl. Yeah. And the victims are all between ages of 1 and 17. A mm -hmm. uh, one-year-old on June 15th survived. Mm -hmm. Strikingly, two-year-old died June 19th, June 25th, four-year-old survived July 19th, one-year-old THC overdose survived. So that's kind of what you were talking about where, you know, a kid ingests a gummy or something and turns out these THC contents are so high, this child ODs and has to be taken to the hospital. This is yeah. not like 60s hash or something. Right. Right. And yeah, it goes to the staying out the window that cannabis has never killed anybody or hurt anybody. Yeah. I mean, pretty crazy. So I've read some of what you have put together and some of the studies that you've cited, and they all seem really well done. It seems pretty clear to me, for instance, that if you have any sort of psychosis or any kind of schizophrenia in your family, you probably should not be engaging in a the marijuana of today. That's exactly right. Yeah, I know when you look at the links, uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and psychosis, schizophrenia, suicide, uh, we're seeing, you know, just so much more heartache about this. It's not the marijuana of the past. And, you know, again, don't take my word for it. You know, people need to read the studies themselves and they'll yeah, see go that. Look at them. And Please, then, yeah. did, Kevin, didn't the Drug Policy Alliance bring Oregon the legalization of marijuana? Oh, absolutely. That was. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. That's the first step, so, right? Yeah, right. So the same people that brought you Measure One Ten brought you that. Absolutely. And then their next step, according to their own words, safe injection sites. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. That's the the next step. And then the, the next step is safe injection sites. But then it's really the legal. It's decrim. It's legalization of all drugs because they're going to say, well, we can't really decriminalize it. We need a market for it because we don't want the underground market. Even though the underground market is bigger than ever for marijuana, even though it's been legalized. So right. the underground market doesn't go away when you legalize any of these substances. Yeah. If you taught, I mean, cannabis was the big industry to get involved in in Oregon and. Lots of people did it, and now they're all complaining that they're being undercut by the black market. Yeah, no, they totally are.
You hit on something that I think is really important. One of the arguments that these Drug Policy Alliance people that are working here in Oregon are making is that we should legalize all drugs because then we won't have as many overdoses. And yeah. if we have these safe injection centers, then people can be monitored and they can be Narcaned. And so what yeah. is the response to this? Well, there's several responses. First of all, our legal drugs kill more people than fentanyl ever has. And it's not because a cigarette is more harmful than fentanyl. Nobody would say that it would be, or alcohol is more harmful than fentanyl. It's not. It's because when you legalize something, you normalize it. And most of the time in the United States, you commercialize it and the, the use goes way up. And if the use is going to go way up when you legalize a substance like you know, heroin that has fentanyl in it. Of course, fentanyl is legalized for medical purposes, but if you're saying for non-medical purposes, um, you just, you, you, it's just, this is all crazy. Uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, those kill you. You know, we had a lot of drug deaths before fentanyl. We ever knew what fentanyl was. So let's don't forget that. Uh, but the reality is um, when you legalize it, you increase its use. That's why our biggest killers in this country are our legal drugs. Again, it's not because one-to-one cigarette is more harmful than heroin it's not it's because cigarettes are so much more prevalent prevalent and the prevalence comes from the legalization um also the idea that you're going to narcan our way out of overdose is completely wrong um i 100 percent support everyone having narcan i would like to see it everywhere everyone needs it to have it you never know you need to save a life so don't don't get me wrong here but when the average person who's Narcan is actually Narcan two dozen times a year, when the 10 to 15 percent of those that's administered Narcan will die within a year, no matter what, according to the studies, uh, and when the overdose rates have been increasing dramatically as we've had Narcan out, that all tells me that Narcan is a very necessary Band-Aid. Uh, and, and so we, we, we need that. And you need, when you have a big wound, it's great to have a Band-Aid. But the idea that the wound can be prevented or stopped just with a little Band-Aid is wrong. And so I'm, I'm just this idea that I know people want like a word that's a simple solution. You know, I mean, I was told at the White House once, if it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, it's not a good solution, you know, politically, because you have to sell it. I get that people want politically saliable, shiny objects, but there's not just one thing that's going to get us out of this tragedy. Um, yes, we need Narcan. I don't want to make it illegal. I don't want to criminalize you if you have it on you. But same with testing strips. These things are not going to get us out of the overdose problem that we have right now at all. So I, I want to just brief people in case they don't know how yeah. I think you're very impressive. In case they don't know how impressive yeah. you are, you no. started in the Clinton administration as a researcher, right? Yeah, I was a I was a young lad uh, back then, and I was uh, I had done work in my in the actually before that in, in my high school on this, and then when I went to college, I went to Berkeley, and uh, I like to joke that you know we started Citizens for a Drug Free Berkeley, which was about as popular as the Coalition <laughs> for a Wine Free France, you know, um, uh, and so Mormon but mission we, in France, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So, but we did, and we had a lot of people interested, and a lot of people kind of like today intimidated publicly to say anything, but behind the scenes were very supportive. And that was during the epidemic we had in this country, if you remember, among young people of um, of uh, designer drugs like MDMA ecstasy and GHB at raves, you know, raves were really big then. So we actually partnered with raves and clubs. We went into clubs and did 
brain education on what happens actually. What does an MRI look like? What does your brain look like, CT scan, when you are on these drugs and how is it affecting you? Because we wanted people to see that. And we actually got away with it at a lot of play. They let us like literally set up an old school slide projector, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> and that con- that got noticed. And I got a phone call from the Clinton White House at the end of the Clinton administration. It was the year, it was the year they were leaving, actually, 2000 to start there. So that kind of began my journey more kind of professionally in this. I still didn't think this is something I wanted to do my whole life, but you know, here I am 23 years later. Well, and the Bush administration kept you on because you did, uh, you were senior speechwriter on drug policy for them. Yeah. Well, I left the Clinton administration at the end. You know, I, I was only supposed to be there for a couple of months anyway, three to six months with general McCaffrey, who's still one of my heroes and good friends uh, who lives in Seattle and knows the tragedy that's happening there. And uh, when um, when George Bush was elected that year, I went to Oxford. I was lucky enough to get what's called a Marshall Scholarship. So I went over to Oxford to start my master's and and thinking about, should I go to law school? Should I get a PhD? I wasn't sure. And as I was kind of in that thought process, I got a phone call from the Bush folks saying, and we know you just left, but we'd actually like to have you back. So, you know, can you kind of finish up your master's quickly and get over here? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, what should I do? And and I, it was just right after 9-11. I felt like uh, my country in some very tiny way wanted me to serve in some little capacity. And so I felt like maybe I should do that. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then I went back to Oxford to get my what, what was then a Ph.D. because I realized I didn't want to go to law school. I wanted to stay in this field somehow. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. And that's what I did. So then I then I went back and got my Ph.D. Well, and then, of course, you returned to the White yeah. House for the, Ob- oh, the Obama administration. You were asked to come back. Yeah, yeah third time's a charm. Third time's a charm. Well, interestingly, yes. So I did my Ph.D. Just figuring out what I was doing. I thought maybe to go on the academic job market and um uh, uh, the Seattle police chief, uh, again, back to the Northwest, uh, Gil Kurlikowski at the time, was asked by President Obama to be the drug czar. And he called me up and said, I've read some stuff you've written. I like it. Will you meet with me? I want to learn more. I just want to learn more. So I figured, yeah, it's great. You know, let's that's really cool. So um, I remember this was at a time, by the way, when, you know, he called me at a time when it's hard to believe the president's approval rating was like, he had just been elected. It was like 70%, right? Yeah, I mean, I like, that. I remember when there was a time of unity, probably the last time of unity in our country. Yeah, um, it was just a, such a remarkable time. So I was very privileged to be called. And I'm nonpartisan. You know, I'm not a member of any, I, was, I very, always, always made that very clear. I always made that. And I told the Clinton folks, I told the Bush folks, and some of them thought that was fine. Some of them really were, were annoyed by it and said, well, you know, hey, we're giving you a position. You should, you know, but I always said, that's my one condition. You know, you can pay me nothing. You can work me to death. But I, the one thing I won't do is, you know, sort of sign on a car that I'm a member of a political party. I just never you know, it's never something I believed in, uh, to be a member of a party. And so, um, so anyway, I, uh, talked to Gil and what was a, supposed to be a 10 minute meeting was a really three hour discussion and was essentially offered a job as senior speechwriter. And, and I went under the same conditions, um, you know, and that was perfectly fine at the time. So yeah, I did that about two and a half years. Well, and you, so as far as I know, you were the only drug policy staffer who was a political appointee in Democrat and Republican White Houses? That's what they tell me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's right. And you are an academic because are you or aren't you affiliated with Yale School of Medicine and also um, there's a there's a 
center in Florida that you head up? Yeah, I I, uh, I do have some toes in academia. I'm reticent to call myself an academic because, you know, there are academics on this issue that I really uh, look up to. And, um, you know, they're publishing like, you know, 10 articles a year and that's all they're doing and they're teaching. I'm not, I, I'm publishing a little bit. Um, I don't I have taught, but I'm not teaching. So, you know, I, I, I maybe have a toe or two, but I wouldn't call myself you know, an academic. So tell us about what you're doing in Oregon in regard to 110. What is the plan here? Well, we are, uh, you know, we've been talking with, um, uh, 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 you know, a lot of people on the ground. And we really, I spent the last year talking to people in Oregon about Measure 110. You know, what are you seeing? What are you, what are you, um, what do you think about what's happening? What do the numbers say? And, and, you know, the culmination of it was basically a group that said, you know, we're, we're fed up with how it is. We want to help rewrite it at the very least. We want to mend it. You know, even if we can't end it, we want to mend it. For and any so, naysayers, can you divulge it all? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're public now. Democrats, oh, whether oh, you, oh. I mean, for anybody out there who's saying, yeah, I'm sure you talked to a lot of anti-drug people or. No, actually, I didn't. I went out of my way not to talk to anti-drug people because I knew where, where they stood. And I, I, I agreed, you know, I, I agreed that they had a great perspective and I totally, you know, took that to. But I actually went out of my way to talk to like very liberal Democrats, like people very close to this current governor, people close to the past governor. Um, I t- talked to, you know, families and progressive families who would never vote for a Republican in their life and never have. Uh, and, uh, you know, I talked to independents. Uh, so it was very important to talk to people kind of out of that sort of normal. And, you know, the, the people that were already, I already knew the people who were against it because I had worked with them before. And so obviously their opinions were valuable to me. But I went out of my way to talk to different, a lot of different people. And so tell us more. Is the plan to amend? Is it to end? Um, what is there a first phase and a second phase? Yeah. So the people I've talked to again, and I've been very careful, unlike the drug policy Alliance, you know, our foundation for drug policy solutions, which is the other hat that I wear, we're not, well, first of all, we don't have the deep pockets like the DPA does. So we can't come in even if we want to do and say, I don't care what anyone thinks for spending $10 million here. And, you know, money talks, <laughs> we wouldn't do that anyway. Cause that's just definitely not my style, but we also, we, we couldn't do that even if we wanted to. So I'm being very transparent here. We're a very small organization. We do not get any money from corp- big corporations or any corporations. We only get money from, um, you know, uh, basically individuals who have, uh, have had tragedies in their families. That's really 90% of our donor base. And uh, so we have to be very careful about how we spend money. So the first thing we did is we did a poll with Emerson College, which is a one of the top five New York Times pollsters. And we were, you know, the only input we had is, you know, we wanted to know what people thought of Measure 110, but we wanted them to do the questions. We didn't want to, you know, we wanted the true answers. We didn't just want, you know, what we wanted to see or whatever. Uh, And so when we got that poll back and found that two thirds of Oregonians from every party any party, I should say, wanted to recriminalize drugs. That really surprised me in some ways, because um, this is like, you know, when you said recriminalize, I mean, this is like language from 30 years ago. That was very interesting. Two thirds wanted to rewrite Measure 110. More than half wanted to repeal it altogether. Um, this really opened our eyes and it really um, made us think that, you know, we need to there is public support for at least mending what's happening. And uh, so we're working with people on the ground right now 
who are going to make a good faith effort to, with the legislature and say, listen, this is what people want. This is what you know leaders in the recovery movement want, prevention, treatment. Let's really do treatment and do it right, as opposed to pretend that we're doing it and really give money to programs that have no accountability, like some of these extreme harm reduction and housing programs that we have no idea whether that's a good use of our funds or not. That's what's happening right now, where that marijuana tax money is going. So um, that's the phase. And then the reality is if 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 that's not being done, we're prepared to help raise money and uh, run an actual ballot initiative, which is, you know, always the nuclear option because it's an expensive option. It's really like there's problems with it, but sometimes you have to do it. And frankly, the legalizers have done that very successfully for 20 years with regards to both marijuana and now psychedelics, by the way, uh, and and now this issue. What are the chances in the legislature? Is that what you're working on right now? Mm-hmm. That's what we're helping out with right now. Again, people on the ground who know better than me about the dynamics can probably answer that question. You know, I put that as a 50-50, I think. I just think I it's a toss-up. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought. I unfortunately do, too. Maybe even less. Maybe, yeah. maybe 40, which is too yeah. bad because these ballot measures, people don't understand. They think that <laughs> because we have all these ballot measures, they it think must be that they're easy. simple. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I get that I every know. day. Like, this is very simple. Just... You know, I'll get an email that says, just put together a ballot measure. How hard can it be? And my response is, do you have any idea who's putting these ballot measures together? Well, my response is, do you have $5 million? And then we'll talk. Like, that's usually, you're you're, you're nicer than me. I'm, like, more impatient. (laughs) It's always out-of-state money. It's the Drug Policy Alliance. It's Sightline out of Seattle, among other people who did our charter reform. I mean, Portland Mm. in Oregon generally is the great guinea pig. Mm, for mm-hmm. anybody who wants to engage in some cockamamie experiment. And yes. we'll, they know we're stupid enough to vote for it. And I think yeah. people are finally waking up. This yeah. Emerson poll shows that people are looking around and realizing, you know, all these people who voted for 110 by a landslide are like me. You know, we're right away. I mean, yeah. Kevin, right away. I have yeah. remorse for this. And I'll be atoning for that until it's just me, the cockroaches, and all these fentanyl addicts here if you're not successful. So I'm really, um, I just think this is incredibly important. So then after the legislature, you need to raise, people got to donate money, right? Because you got to get these yes. signatures. And yeah, we're going to have to form is very expensive. Very expensive, and it's tricky, and it's a really, actually, it's kind of a dirty business, to be honest with you. I won't tell you the kinds of people that are hired to do this. It's actually, like, I'm surprised someone hasn't done some deep dive investigation, and it hasn't caused reform. Because remember, ballot initiatives in states like Oregon, California, Washington, this was a progressive movement 120 years ago, because essentially politicians were not listening to the interests of the majority of their citizens they were listening to at that time it's hard to believe uh you know sort of agrarian small interests that helped fund re-election campaigns and things and so this was considered progressive it was considered you know the same kinds of things the same people that frankly drew you know alcohol prohibition and the eight-hour you know work day and i mean this was a very progressive thing it was anti-corporate it is what it was anti-money and it has completely flipped. I mean, this would make any of those progressives, you know, spin in their grave when just to see the money that you need to do this now. It's not the intent at all of what it was supposed to be. And so now we're at a point where it's the special interests that win with these ballot initiatives. Now, sometimes, you know, there are exceptions. Um, the issue is so obvious that 
no amount of money can 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 help it. And that a good example is, you know, um, some of the cigarette flavor bans that have gone through despite big tobacco. Um, they've been outfunded and they, yet they've won. So, you know, it's not there's not no hope there. But I am, you know, with this issue, I have no doubt that it's very popular to change it or repeal it. And I have no doubt that people, even with some of the deeper pockets who get involved in politics, that they're going to want to get involved on the correct side of this because it's just so egregious what's happening in terms of what's happening to people every day. Yeah, based on the polling, it sounds like you didn't even have to win hearts and minds. All people are doing is using their eyes and ears and looking around and watching people flood in from all over the country to enjoy the decriminalization of drugs, which unfortunately happened when we defunded the police to the tune of $27 million. So, you know, to the extent tickets aren't being handed out, I mean, I'm watching on Instagram the poor beleaguered PPB bike squad hand out Mm. these tickets right and left. They're immediately discarded. They're thrown oh, yeah. in puddles. They're, I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they be? There's no follow-up. And this is where the accountability when it comes to, you know, compulsive or addiction, you know, addictive behavior, this is where it comes into play. We, we are perpetuating, um, you know, death and despair. It's the opposite of compassion. I think it's the opposite of progressive. It's the opposite of sort of if you care for your fellow man, it's just kind of, live and let live. This is a lifestyle choice. It's bodily autonomy. It's whatever you want to do. In reality, not only are they, of course, hurting themselves, but they're hurting other people. And so where's the harm reduction for the community? I I haven't heard anybody talk about that. You know, where's the harm reduction for family members reducing the harm? We're not doing that. No, no, we're definitely not doing that. And then also there's there's this other issue going on here where we have We've normalized this. Like you said, we didn't even need to legalize the drugs to normalize it. And so I'm looking right now out my window and I can see Mm. four people Mm. bent over, which tells me they're on fentanyl. Um, People call it the fentanyl lean around here. Mm -hmm. It's just it's weird. For people who don't live here, it's you're standing up. They're standing up. They're bent at the waist or their shoulders are slumped over. And people can be like that for an hour. Yeah. Even. Yeah. And then they and then they go into withdrawal soon. They need it again. Right, because it's a very quick high. And so then they're out buying these cheap pills again. And in the meantime, they're doing whatever they need to do to support that drug habit. And given that they're all sleeping on the streets, it's probably you know not gainfully employed. Um, Kevin, what do you say to, to the argument that, this is another thing that I'm hearing from a lot of people who are pro 110, mandatory drug treatment doesn't work, that intervention doesn't work. They'll come when they're ready. And so in the meantime, let's just give them what Multnomah County calls boofing kits to put drugs in your bottom or or foil or, you know, they kind of stop with the needles because I think they realize everybody's smoking fentanyl. But let's give them foil. Let's give them straws. Really, the only place you can find a plastic straw in Portland is handed out by the county for you to do drugs with. So what do you say to people who who argue that that builds trust and then if they want to get treatment, they will. And that's when it will really work. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, people talk about wait lists for treatment and that we do have wait lists because there are plenty of people who want it who can't get it. And that's that needs to change. But it's more about waiting for people to want treatment, waiting for people to realize they have a problem. This is a disease of denial. And if we're going to be waiting around for people to realize they have a problem, we're going to be waiting around until it's too late. So there's absolutely very good data showing that coerced treatment 
um, and treatment with some kind of incentive, which, by the way, is the way that we I mean, there's a lot of, you know, treatment we do, treatment we do for cancer, treatment we do for a lot of things that are in some ways coerced, not necessarily by I'm not saying with a knife to your throat, but, you know, there are people in the community, the doctors around you when you have cancer, they <laughs> really try and talk you into this, into having treatment for it. I mean, that's not like a new thing. Is it uh, can arguably yeah. coerced? Well, you're yeah, I mean, in some ways, you're yeah, in some dead. ways you're forcing it's, something on someone. Yeah, it's foisted yeah, you're, upon you. And yeah. I would also argue, and at least this is my argument to the harm reduction people, that Narcan is an intervention. You know, they don't yes. want intervention. And their argument is living, like you said, this is libertarian argument of, of this is a lifestyle choice and let's leave these people alone. But then they're begging for Narcan and they want them Narcan every two seconds. And so the police, the EMT, the firefighters, that's all they do anymore really is Narcan yeah. people. I mean, my neighbor is a nurse at OHSU. Mm. She resuscitated a guy at six o'clock in the morning on our max platform, right out, wow. right at our neighborhood. Wow. So, I mean, civilians are, are bringing yeah. these people back and I'd argue that's an intervention and it seems to be one that even the Drug Policy Alliance is fine with. So on some yeah. level, it seems like we can reach people or work together and peel enough people away who can look around and like you said talk to the family members of of addicts talk to the actual recovered addicts themselves and see you know a lot of the recovered addicts in our north america recovers coalition kevin they got alpha drugs in jail that was yeah, their worst yeah uh tom wolf it's true oh who's well been on this podcast I'll, brent denton all those guys I mean, the the last Obama drug czar, who was the first person in recovery to be the drug czar, Michael Botticelli, who I think is pretty sympathetic to a lot of harm reduction stuff, he'll tell you he got sober because uh, he got handcuffs on him for drunk driving. And if he didn't if he didn't have those handcuffs, he wasn't going to be stopping anytime soon. Um, and I mean, he's he admits that. So uh, coercion is often not only kind of, you know, sometimes needed, it's often what is needed. And yes, we can do it in a compassionate way, but this is a disease that does respond to, again, carrots and sticks. That's why drug courts are so successful, which unfortunately I know in, in Oregon and Portland, they closed down the drug possession drug courts after measure 110, which um, is a horrible measure thing. measure 11 crimes. Mm -hmm. Those are mm -hmm. the most serious crimes you can commit in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So wow. Kevin Barton, who's who you know, who's yes. the DA of Washington County, his, he when he came in here, he said, he found that appalling. He said, those are people mm -hmm. who are attempting to murder people, who are assaulting, mm -hmm. raping. They're people that need to be incapacitated in prison. And they don't, mm -hmm. to the extent they need, you know, drug treatment, that's great. Mm -hmm. But then we also need to keep the public safe from them. Their reward is not to be released. And then mm -hmm. in the meantime, his argument in his drug court is incredibly successful. His recidivism yeah. rate I'm is, sure. I mean, which means the people who go on to continue to relapse right. and commit crimes, his recidivism rate is is very low and his success yeah. rate is over 50%, which I think, well, you know more about these drugs than I do, I think that's no, a rousing success given that we're dealing with fentanyl and trank. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is. It is. It's very, and you know, and I, I'm a big fan of drug court for all kinds of crimes because these 70% of people in the criminal justice system have a, uh, drug problem, 70%. That, so that, that, that's, you know, it's not just people doing drug crimes, people doing a lot of other crimes. And, you know, when, if we can get ahead of it like this, it really, it helps a lot.
And so is that the answer to the argument that if we get rid of 110, we're gonna end up, I mean, the argument in Portland anyway is we incarcerate more people of color disproportionately, and so if we get rid of 110, we're gonna put a whole bunch of people of color back in jail. Well, actually it's drug that court, is, they get drug court and they're- Well, they're, I think as they get, they get drug court, they're gonna be more likely to get help, they're gonna be more likely to get treatment. No one's saying we just wanna arrest them and put them in jail and prison, that's not what we wanna do. So, um, you know, it, there, yeah, there, there sometimes needs to be some kind of consequence. So there might be a, some kind of spike in, in a little bit of an increase in arrest, but this is not about a war on drugs. This is not about, you know, and that's what will be the number one argument against what we're, anything we're trying to do is we're trying to arrest a lot of people up, which we're not. What is your assessment of what's going on in Portugal? What happened there? Because the doctor who you know, who helped implement the yeah. detox and rehab and intervention policy, Zhao Gulao seems, I saw that interview of him in the New York Times, he seems very unhappy with what's going on in Portugal right now. Well, I think they're they're worried about a lot of funding. They're not getting a lot of the funding they were getting before. Um, Portugal's so different because they're closing down open-air drug markets. Uh, we have a, um, a very simple one-pager on our website, gooddrugpolicy.org, that actually goes through the, the sort of Portland, or Oregon, I should say, versus Portugal. Uh, and so they, they're closed down open-air drug markets. There's consequences for not showing up to um their actual uh to the to the dissuasion commission i mean they have a dissuasion commission and it's called dissuasion i mean you're the point is to get you off of drugs they realize that's what you need to be doing um i was very skeptical of portugal 15 years ago um i'll be honest with you because i saw the drug policy alliance and the cato institute and other libertarian folks really um you know, say that this was awesome and this is legalization. But then when I dug into it and I talked to Joao now, I've known him for a long time now and talked to him many times, I realized that's not what they're trying to do. They actually, the biggest thing they did was increase treatment capacity. They did that in a way that we've never really done here in the U.S., uh, you know, not to the scale of what we need to do. So uh, they increased treatment capacity. They have a separate system for those who are caught with drugs. That's an administrative system that goes through the Dissuasion Commission. Um, I think they have been hurting lately because of lack of funding. It's not a perfect policy. They've seen an increase in drug use lately as well. So, you know, it, it, these things, drug markets are dynamic. We need to tweak things when we need to. Um, it probably hasn't been tweaked like it should be, but it also is not the poster child for legalization like we hear from some of the advocates. Well, and it's not, my understanding is you would know better. It's not normalized there. It's actually stigmatized. No. It is stigmatized. And remember, stigma for unhealthy, dangerous behavior is a good thing. That doesn't mean we want to stigma. <laughs> That's the shocking thing to say, right? Um, you know, we're not stigmatizing the person, though. That's the difference. So no, of this not. terms, but this term stigma has been really thrown around so much that it almost has lost all meaning. How did we reverse the cigarette trend that we had in this country? We reversed it because we stigmatized smoking and we told smokers that they were being duped by big tobacco and we can get them help. So now we have free smoking cessation in the entire country of any kind, you know, with the patch, without the patch, depending. But we stigmatize cigarette use. So stigma can be very helpful as well. Yeah, it's very strange. Oregon did not seem to mind and still does not seem to mind doing that. I mean, we, yes. I, I was an adult when there was still smoking in bars 
And, yep. you know, that is long gone now. And I can't imagine the kind of reactions somebody would get from lighting up a cigarette anywhere around here in a restaurant. And I don't care if you're in a bar. Um, really, even just people, you got to be 10 feet outside the door. They do enforce that. It's really strange how we've just thrown all that out when, it, like you said, it comes to dangerous and, and just extremely unhealthy behavior like fentanyl. Yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. Um, and we we sort of, you know, uh, we allow marijuana and other drug smoking in public places that we would never allow cigarettes. And um, it's just a it's a very schizophrenic policy that we have on this. Is there anywhere people can go if they want to donate to this effort to fix yes. slash repeal 110? Where can they go to do that? They can go to gooddrugpolicy.org and we'll make sure that uh, the or we make sure that the Oregon donations go to the Oregon effort. So they can go to gooddrugpolicy.org and then, um, you know, stay tuned next year if needed. Hopefully not. But if needed with the ballot campaign, we'll have their own separate, uh, you know, apparatus where people can donate. And if the other question I got when I told people you were coming on is what is the fix? Because they're concerned mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the fix isn't going to go far enough to comport with the polling you just talked about. And they're concerned that, hey, most people just want to get rid of this thing. Yeah, I mean, look, most people do. And so it really but I think it's a it's an opportunity to not just get rid of something and go back to a broken system. Because it was also a broken system before, too. And let's let's admit it. I mean, Oregon 50th in the country for treatment admission, one of the highest reuse rates in the country. So we actually have a chance to make a better system. We have a chance to invest in treatment for real this time. I mean, basically deliver on the promises that they promised. Right. We, we want treatment. Yes, we want that's right. We want we want accountability. So that's kind of the you know the policy levers we're going to be pushing treatment accountability also by the way something we never talk about which is the most obvious thing to talk about and the most cost effective thing is prevention i mean where is the prevention campaign on this so we need we're going to be looking at how to invest money into that as well and so if you fix quote unquote fix 110 you take those cannabis tax dollars and they go to things like this is theoretical. I'm assuming that you don't have, you know, something in writing and this is something that you would negotiate with legislators. Yeah. So yeah. it, it would be something, the proposal would go something like, hey, we take those cannabis tax dollars and we put it towards prevention. We put it towards, by treatment, we mean detox and rehab. We don't mean foil. Yeah. We don't mean right. straws. Um, and we build out the infrastructure that we should have done, that Portugal yeah. did through Dr. Galau yes. before yeah. passing this. That's right. And and we and look, and I'm open all that's correct. And I'm open to even thinking, look, if there's something that has improved in the last three years, um, like a recovery infrastructure or something like that, no, let's take any not. little bit that has, <laughs> if there is. If there isn't, then forget about it. But there, there's um, not. but we but but we're in it for the right reasons. We're not in it to for an agenda. We're not in it like the DPA, which is really to legalize all drugs and trick people into voting into something that they don't want. So we're going to all be very honest and open about how to do this. But we're going to be guided by real principles that actually show effectiveness, which is, you know, compassion, care, treatment, accountability, awareness and prevention, you know, recovery focused policies. And that's what we're going to be driven by. Do and under the fix 110, do we recriminalize do we recriminalize drugs? I think that's something we have to look at in the fine print because, you know, there's criminalization and there's criminalization, right? There's decriminalization and there's decriminalization. Yes. There's decriminalization with zero follow-up, 
you know, laissez-faire, basically legalization. Now. That's right. What we have now. But there's also a way that so we're not going to want to, you know, that you don't have to criminalize somebody who's using drugs, but you actually have to incentivize them to get help first. And you can do that through drug courts and other ways. So, you know, a lot of these terms, they're thrown out by you know, folks that have larger agendas to try and catch us into saying something and all that. But, um, you know, I think we want to do the right thing and we want accountability. We want treatment, compassion. That's a great point, because um, as an attorney, if I if I'm researching mm. somebody I'm about to depose, I'll go on the I'll <laughs> look them up. You know, I'll find out. Do yeah. you have any criminal convictions? If you have a felony, I get to talk about it in trial. Yeah. And what will come <laughs> up are their parking yeah. tickets. Right. And mm. so we don't think of parking wrong is being criminalized and so there is a way even within the criminal justice system to do something like portugal does and use a intervention via a police officer or somebody else we deputize to do this to do something like Portugal does and mm-hmm. intervene and put together a dissuasion commission or do the drug court and bring that back. That seems to have pretty good. I mean, like you said, yes. Kevin Obama funded drug courts because they work. He used yes, data exactly. based on what was working throughout the country. And That's then right. he sent federal dollars to fund drug court. That's exactly right. And and it's very bipartisan. I mean, people really do yeah, you know, people who are in this for the right reasons realize that this is a very effective, uh, very, very effective intervention. Yeah, I, I, I see. I didn't realize that language. That I, it's so Orwellian living here. I didn't realize that language discrepancy about criminalization, that criminal, it doesn't mean handcuffs. It could, but no. it doesn't need to. No, no, it doesn't. And you can do it in a way that you have credible threats that even the user buys into. The user, you know what? Yeah, I understand what's fair. I understand what I did. I understand that I want to get, you know, that this is part of it. So there are there are real interventions that can work in that regard. Kevin, what else do we need to know about your work and, and what's going on with 110 in Oregon? Well, I just think it's a it's a place that we want everyone to watch the space. It's it's developing as we speak. Um, we're working. We're trying. You know, the legislature is going to be starting up, and we're trying to work with them. and And if not, we're going to be going to the people, and we're going to need everybody's help. That, that's all I could say right now. I think something that's really important is that everybody, when you go on Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions, go to Leadership Council, because Mike Marshall, who's been on this podcast from Oregon mm-hmm. Recovers, who I just think is one of the best guys, yeah. he helped, he tried to get 110 yes. defeated. He tried to educate yes, us. Yeah, we didn't listen. Yes. He didn't have the money to overpower the Drug Policy Alliance. Mike is on the Leadership Council for Foundation right. for Drug Policy Solutions. Also, yes. Billy Williams. He's our former... Yes. Oregon U.S. Attorney, also Washington State Representative, a Democrat named Lauren Davis. So these are Northwestern people. We've got some experts here, professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Harvard. That's John Kelly. We have uh, Ben Tucker, who's former U.S. Deputy Drug Czar and former NYPD First Deputy Commissioner. I mean, these are not this isn't the importation of ideas that were drummed up by somebody in a think tank no. on the East Coast somewhere. This, there are people from not just Oregon, two people from Oregon, mm-hmm. but people from the Northwest generally on yes, the Leadership right. Council. That's right. That's exactly right. So I really yep. appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you. It was good to Thanks, see you. Chris. 
It was great to see you too. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Wonderful what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Take care.